The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a spoiler special podcast on Fifty Shades of Grey, an adaptation of the best-selling, what would we call it, a BDSM porn romance? (laughs) Sure. A ladies' erotica thriller? Precisely. (laughs) You guys have to tell me what we call it, especially because I haven't read the book. So here's who we have to talk about Fifty Shades today. Amanda Hess, who is a staff writer at Slate. Hi, Amanda. Hi. And who just posted a very funny and I think quite provocative piece on the Fifty Shades movie. And Dan Coyce from Washington, Slate's culture editor. Hi, Dan. Hello. And you have been brought in for several reasons. Well, for one thing, you insisted. <laughs> you really wanted to talk about this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you sure. have read the book, which Amanda has too, but so long ago she doesn't really remember it, and I have not read the book. Yeah, I think I blocked it out. <laughs> so bad. Uh, I have pretty vivid memories of the feelings it made me feel. And you did an audiobook club on the book too, which is my only experience of the book now, having listened to that. And uh, the quotes that you read from it all sounded fantabulous. Okay, so let's go around quickly and just um, give a quick reaction to the movie, and then we can get into some spoiling. Amanda, yes, no? Would you send a friend to this movie? A thousand times yes. (laughs) Run, do not walk. I loved it. (laughs) And Dan, what about you? Uh, I guess it depends on how I feel about the friend. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you want to bring them into your private, flogging, cinematic (laughs) red room? Exactly. I sort of feel that this is not a good movie, yet I would watch it again and would definitely recommend that people have a couple of drinks and go with their friends to this movie. Exactly. Sure. I mean, I, I can't say I enjoyed it, but I think I saw it in the wrong circumstances, which was just, you know, alone at a press screening. I think it's something that needs to be seen either in a drinking game context with friends or, I don't know. It, it's, it's, with it's, your dom. You should I see it with your dom or yourself. <laughs> Well, okay, so that brings me to my next question, and that has to do with the um, the kind of tonal, I don't know what you would call it, the, the, the aim of this movie's relationship toward its audience. Amanda, when you write about it, you say that you think that this is essentially meant to be hate-watched as the book was meant to be hate-read, that it was mainly experienced by you and by a lot of people in the audience as a kind of ironic, campy piece of porn. Yeah, I mean, I felt like it was almost like one of those um, porn parodies, uh, but with um, better actors or more uh, or one better actor and one just handsomer actor uh, where I thought it was very funny. Uh, but the campy aspects sort of seduced me into being in this theater to watch a bunch of weird, but not that weird, sex stuff with a bunch of other people. And I kind of liked the sex stuff. So I could appreciate it on multiple levels. I mean, I think I do think it works. I don't think it's only meant to be hate watch. I do think that there are people who love the book sincerely uh, and who will go in and will sincerely love or maybe hate this movie. But I don't I think there are people who are watching this movie on that specific level, on the specific level of real deep abiding affection for the book and these characters and who will watch the movie in that way. I also think there's a huge population of people who who view this property in a very canny, self-knowing way, as you sort of touch on, Amanda, in your piece, that they both appreciate it and find it sexy and also find it laughable and the laughableness of it helps them sort of embrace helps them be willing to sort of touch the side of their own sexuality or personality that they want to get into. I think you also say that the fan fiction that this book originally was, right, because it sprung out of a, a piece of Twilight fan fiction that was sort of turned into this this novel, this best-selling novel, that that fanfic aspect returns in the movie and that you feel like you're watching filmed fanfic, which I thought was a very interesting point. Yeah, I actually talked to three women after the movie. So I came out of the movie and I felt 
great. And I wanted to share it with someone. And I talked to these three women who um, were fans of the book who were not into the movie. They said that Jamie Dornan was not dominant enough. And they thought that Charlie Hunnam, is that his name? The original actor who was going to play Christian Grey, right? That he would have been great, but that Jamie Dornan was kind of like Faye, basically, Um, which I don't disagree with. Um, So I think maybe if you're more invested on a level that I admit that I don't totally understand in the book and its sexual dynamics, you may not be um, satisfied by the movie. But the movie really does sort of lay bare how kind of basic those sexual dynamics are. Like it, the movie made reminded me anew that f- despite the fact that this is a novel that has supposedly titillated millions because it finally brings BDSM into the mainstream, the vast majority of sex in this story is, you know, as Christian Gray refers to it in the uh, in the movie and in the book, it's vanilla, right? It's like vague. It's like tying someone's wrists together or holding their wrists above their head while you guys have sex, or like brushing them with a feather three times and then going down. <laughs> oh my god, the but peacock like, feather! That's anti-sadism, right? Being right, brushed with like, a peacock feather followed by missionary position I know. sex. Like half right. of the sex was like him going down on her. There was a end, which like is great. I'm happy to have as much of that as possible in movies, but like, but it reminded me that in the book too. There's only one real actual scene that's meant to be painful and transgressive, actually, in the book, and it's that last scene. And I do hope we'll talk sort of toward the end of this conversation about that last scene and how it's handled. But in general, this is really most of the sex in this movie is sort of skinamax level softcore porn where you don't quite see anything, but you almost see it and they grind a lot and you see a lot of O-Face. Like, that is what is happening in this movie. And the book is considerably dirtier, Dan? The book, no, well, I mean, the book is dirtier in the sense that there's long discussions about his thrusting cock and stuff. (laughs) But it's not, but it's not more transgressive. Like, it is more explicit, but it's not like the sex is any, is really any more, like, violent or bondage or BDSM-y. Like, it really is also a book full of mostly vanilla sex. And then at the end, he unleashes the full fury of his of his Fifty Shades of fucked, up, fucked Upness upon her, and then she gets upset and leaves. Can you tell us about the tampon scene, though? Because I read an article that said <laughs> that E.L. James and Sam Taylor Johnson, the director, both agreed to keep the tampon scene out of the movie. The tampon scene is uh, that they are making out, and he is like, when did you start your period? And she's like, how did you know? And then he turns her around, they're like in the bathroom and he just takes out her tampon and throws it in the toilet and then fingers her to climax. Like that is the tampon scene, but it's like, it's like meant to be like a sort of a moment of domination, him over her where he is so in tune with her body that he can even sense this thing. And he is so willing to do anything that he will do that. And that turns (laughs) her on vanilla menstruation sex. I mean, he's like a wild bear or something. He can like smell the blood. I I mean, I totally agree with you, Dan. And I think the past few years where there have been all of this, this think piecing and hand wringing about how American women, you know, secretly want to be controlled by men is totally nullified by going to see this movie and just seeing how basic and normal it is. And And it's really, I mean, I think E.L. James' book and this movie are both 
a fantasy of a fantasy. Um, And so I also think when people in the BDSM community are upset about this movie, uh, and I can see why they are, I just don't want them to take my fantasy of their fantasy away from me, though. (laughs) I'm totally fine with it. You mean they would be upset? Let me try to trace this. Like, they would be upset with this movie because it presents BDSM as a kind of twisted, dark, as as something that Christian Grey needs to be pulled out of back into the world of normal boyfriendhood. Is that the problem? Yeah, because the, I mean, his sadism, such as it is, is, it seems totally centered in him being an abusive, stalkery boyfriend and not really centered in his sexual proclivities, like, almost at all. Uh, So while BDSM is this sort of playful, safe way to express, you know, some of those um, darker feelings, I guess, sexually, uh, he's just expressing his darkness as, like, an asshole, abusive boyfriend um, and then having feather sex (laughs) with her. (laughs) All right, well, let's walk through some of these things. I do want to talk about the stalker moment, but we haven't even sort of set up the basic story of the movie for people who don't know the book or the movie. So, Dan, you are my traditional summer upper. Will you do some of the summing? We'll we'll pitch in, too. All right, so there's not that much plot, so it's pretty easy to spoil. Anastasia Steele, who's played by Dakota Johnson, is a a wistful college senior, an English lit major, who is not sure what she's going to do with the rest of her life, and her roommate is uh, a... A, the valedictorian of her class and a journalism major. And she has lined up an interview for the school paper with the wealthy industrialist who's going to be speaking at their graduation, Christian Gray, who is played by Jamie Dornan. Um, but she is sick and she can't do the interview. So as any journalist would, she types her questions on a piece of paper and sends her inexperienced roommate up to Seattle to do this interview. And they meet in Christian Gray's office and she trips and falls because um, she's submissive, I guess. And he picks <laughs> her up and gives her a pencil because he's a dom and then they immediately have a moment and he starts pursuing her and she starts allowing herself to be pursued and then the plot of the rest of the movie as it was in the book is he is a bdsm uh aficionado or really that is his he says that's his only way of being he can't have a normal relationship he wants her and he wants that kind of relationship with her she wants him but she wants a normal boyfriend relationship with him and the book is about them coming together, literally and phys- and figuratively, um, as she learns to accept some aspects of bondage in their sexual life. And he is so taken by her that he starts sometimes acting like a normal boyfriend and uh, agreeing to take her out ice skating and stuff. More than awesome. sometimes. I mean, he's pretty forthcoming on those points from the beginning, right? As yeah. part of the deal, he says we can have a once a week date, which is, you know, more than you could hope for from most telecommunications, it's more than, it's more than industrialist my millionaire boyfriends. Right. Um, so yeah, so then the so then the sort of the primary driving action of the middle of the movie is their long contract negotiation. Um, he sends her a contract about how their relationship will work, not just their sexual relationship, but their whole relationship, where she will live, what she will eat, um, what she'll be allowed to do and see. Um, and she negotiates that contract pretty vivaciously, and it all culminates in an incredibly maybe the most sexy contract negotiation scene in cinematic history where they're sitting across a table from each other, drinking wine and going point by point through the contract and studying certain uh, contract stipulations and adding others. Um, and then the movie ends with him with him whipping her six times and her getting upset and walking out. Well, because she asks him, right? She says, do the worst thing you would ever want to do to me, kind of display the, the, the nadir of your... Um 
of your pain infliction. And that's when he gives her six spanks and she leaves in tears. <laughs> right. Because she's like a fucking baby. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> The only thing I would add is that the contract, yeah, I think we should talk a bit about the contract thing because she never does sign it, right? At least until the end of this movie. I feel like the contract is kind of the equivalent of Bella becoming a vampire in the Twilight series, right? It's this thing that she can keep on deferring and deferring and deferring until she finally enters his world, which I assume in one of the next two chapters will happen. Oh, my God. That's an amazing connection to Twilight that I had not thought of before, but that's obviously correct. That's (laughs) amazing. Yeah, no, that's obviously true. I mean, in the Twilight series, she is eager to sign this contract and he's fending her off. So in this series, he's dominant and he's trying to get her to sign it and she doesn't want to do it yeah so she doesn't she refuses to sign it and that becomes like a a point of contention between them because he doesn't like that he is sort of giving in to his boyfriend's side and he it seems like he is worried that she'll i don't know exactly what he's worried about that's like less clear in twilight it's super obvious that he doesn't want to turn her into being a vampire because being a vampire is bad it's less clear what the problem is here he he, in fact, wants to turn her into a vampire. And yes, he's pushing this contract on her, but she's demurring for whatever reason. But it also seems like he has a lot of shame, right? I mean, and this is, again, something that actual BDSMers might get upset about, that he kind of has moral shame about the world that he inhabits, which comes out when he plays his grand up. piano. Right, exactly. And looks out the window and declares himself 50 shades of fucked up. Right. This is part of my my favorite parts of the movie are the ones that just look like a Calvin Klein ad where he sort of like smugly peels off his T-shirt, but then she notices that he has burns all over his chest, and he's like, don't look at me, you know, right. don't but, but don't talk about, but let me just peel it off again. Wait, don't touch me. <laughs> so great. All right, so that brings me to my next set of questions, which has to do with uh, the chemistry or lack of between the two actors. So it's it's a known thing that these two actors apparently loathe each other They're on the press tour for Fifty Shades. There's a great piece in Gawker that kind of gathers up all the moments that they, you know, said very lackluster, backstabby sort of things about their working relationship during the movie and generally appear to be miserable to be spending time together. Um, but I guess it's possible that they could feel that way and still come off on screen as having chemistry. So I want to know from both of you, do these two actors have chemistry? Does it matter if they have chemistry? And is the movie sexy? Does it actually succeed in arousing? I would like to defend them slightly. I, I'm not convinced they hate each other. I am convinced they hate E.L. James. And they hate <laughs> the story and the movie. And they hate all the fans. But I think that maybe they've <laughs> just been both driven insane and can't deal but and maybe they're not like actually at each other's throats. But yes, those those publicity interviews are horrible and awkward. Um, uh, they don't really have much chemistry in the movie, mostly because of him. He is just like not that. I think that he could be an okay actor, but he's not that well suited to this part, and he um, just doesn't seem that intimidating. Wait, or what makes you think he could be an okay actor? Am I allowed to say I'm not sure that he could be an okay actor? He still seems like a Brooks Brothers model. <laughs> People really love him in that British serial killer show that I have not seen. I liked him in the fall, but a lot of his role was running around in hoodies and murdering people. (laughs) So those things, I mean, he's really good at. And I thought he was good at pretending to have sex with her. Um, well, that's great. I but didn't he doesn't seem to be enjoying. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be enjoying it. Yeah, I actually. So I didn't think they had very good chemistry. Um, I also thought he was not a good. He was not good in this role. I thought she was great. 
Um, she is great. Yeah, uh, everyone is saying Dakota Johnson's great. I have some. Okay, I will. I will give okay. her a chance we'll, in another we'll movie. She's lovely. It. She's beautiful, and she is has a sort of expressive face. But I feel like she's getting. She's benefiting from some Stockholm syndrome that he is so terrible and so wooden <laughs> that by comparison, she's at least doing some acting. Yeah. Like everyone um, thinks Geppetto is so good because Pinocchio is so bad. <laughs> I actually uh, no. didn't think it mattered that much, though, for me, at least for the in the mode that I was watching the movie, because I didn't have an investment in their romantic relationship. Um, I didn't think about or care about that. Uh, but I did like watching them have sex in a way that I guess you watch, like, porn, where it's like, it doesn't matter what their relationship is, but it was, like, kind of hot. And I think it was, like, particularly sort of uh, tingle-making, arousing. <laughs> I don't know. It's so embarrassing. Because I Can was... we put tingle-making <laughs> in the headline for this spoiler? <laughs> ah, because I was in this theater surrounded by, like, you know, hundreds of people, and we're all just, like, basically watching porn together. And even if it's, like, totally vanilla porn, it it sort of feels heightened in that way. Um, and that's the reason that I, I really want people to go see this movie because I think it's something that, you know, like my parents in the 70s went and watched porn films when they were showing them, like, on college campuses. This film will be a way for me to, you know, explain to, like, my grandchildren the precise, weird, messed-up sexual moment that we were in in 2015, uh, and I will probably show it to them. <laughs> I agree. I agree, Amanda, that there is like something interesting about about watching this movie in a theater full of people. Although it's not like a unique experience. That it's not, there have been other movies that I have sat in theaters and watched that have also had near explicit sex in them. I mean, I think Dana long, long ago we did a spoiler special about Lust Caution, Ang Lee's movie. Right. That is more explicit than this, I would say, and also more uh kinky than oh, this. And far superior. I really um, like Lust Caution. But, but so, also but, like, but is that an erotic retelling of a vegetarian vampire novel written by um an Arizona Mormon? I yes, mean actually it is. I, it, <laughs> Very few people then know that. Then I will about check online. it out because it sounds um, but like no, it's but, for me. But I, but I do agree with you that there is something transgressive feeling about that. And I do think that like the their first sex scene is that's like the that's sort of the one where the where Sam Taylor Johnson, the director, sort of shoots her load as a director on filming sex scenes. All the best sex stuff is in that, up to and including her telling him that she's a virgin and him saying time to rectify the situation <laughs> taking her off and deflowering her but that's like a that's like a pretty solid movie sex scene that like is is more explicit than most in that you see groins grinding together it's not just like you know the the fabled silhouetted faces next to each other and that's all we actually see of the sex like there is a progression of sexual moves and things happening and it tries to take you all the way through the sex from beginning to end from initiation to orgasm in a way that is like satisfying as a movie watcher but the rest of the sex did not like do it for me and the more like fake bondage it got the more faintly ridiculous it seemed to me and the, the way less sexy it seemed i could not 
in a way that you seemingly could, Amanda. I could not tie the ridiculousness of it to my own arousal. Like those, those were at odds with each other. <laughs> oh my God, no. I just, yeah, I have to just weigh in and say every single sex scene to me was just like two beige pipe cleaners being rubbed together. It's not possible to imagine hey, more boring I mean, sex. The heart wants what it wants, Dana. Yeah. Um, but, so, uh, yeah. but so let's talk about her because we agree, we all agree that he sucks. Um, and but I do actually think Dana that she ha- that there was real spark to her performance, but the spark was not what I expected. Like when I think of this character from the book, I think of her basically as just like a, a bumbling, um, slightly sad, slightly lost girl who like finds herself in this relationship, and that may or may not reflect what is actually in the book. It's been a long time since I've read it, but I was really pleased and surprised and happy about the comic spark to her performance in a way that turned almost the entire first half of the movie into like a a real comedy, like with real laughs and real jokes that really worked. And part of it was because she, as I think Hannah Rosen pointed out, or maybe it was you and your piece, Amanda, I can't remember, pointed out she, she essentially sort of serves as like an audience surrogate of she is just as dubious about Christian Grey and is just as willing to puncture his, like, weird sex balloon as much as we as an audience are. <laughs> so when, you know, when he, set, when he like, shows up in her hardware store and starts spookily buying cable ties and masking tape, she is flustered and she plays that pretty well. But she also plays really well. This guy is weird and what the shit is he doing? Yeah, you're right. No, What's you're your right. problem? I've got to give to go to Johnson that some of her giggles in the first half of the movie at unexpected moments as she's being turned over his knee or some moment that is supposed to be sort of daunting and she sort of laughs her way through it were kind of wonderful and reminded me a little bit to, to cite a far superior movie about sex again of Belle de Jour, the Louis Benwell movie yeah. where Catherine Deneuve becomes a, a prostitute, a housewife who becomes a prostitute. Not, not dissimilar in the way that it sort of you know takes a bourgeois character and makes her more kinky, but there's a lot of great laughs by Catherine Deneuve in that movie that make you realize that when you think that she's being degraded, she's actually having the time of her life. And what's but what is weird about it is that it sort of overturns the what I think is the intention of this movie, and that at no point did I think that uh, that Anastasia Steele was in any danger of having her life overwhelmed at all. And in fact, it seemed to me to make the story seem much more like uh, the story of this like vanilla college student basically uh, screwing up the perfectly tuned BDSM lifestyle of this wealthy millionaire because she's so forthright in her belief that this is like crazy and she'll go along with it for a little while. But seriously, come on, dude. So since this is, after all, a spoiler special, I think we should talk about the ending, which certainly readers of the book or the books, the series, will be interested to know at what point the movie ends. So um, so let's let's go there. And non-readers will, I think, be really upset because, at least in my audience, it was very easy to tell who are the readers and who are the non-readers because the movie ends with, as we said before, her demanding that he really show her, the, open up the darkest side of his psyche to, to her and, and show her the kind of punishment he really could be dealing out. So he takes her into his, his playroom, the Red Room of Pain, and um, takes a whip and says, I'm going to whip you six times and whips her on the ass six times. It's pretty hard. Um, and she <laughs> it seems hard. it seems to hurt. Well, it's like he his so this is one problem I had with the movie. His exertions made it seem hard, but the sound design should have been louder. It should have been those whips should have been really loud. Um, and then she is so upset by it that she basically is like, "I never want to see you again." And she walks out the door and into the elevator of his penthouse apartment. And he says, 
Anastasia and she says Christian and then the doors close and that's the end of the movie. And so it's like a romantic cliffhanger at the end of this movie. <laughs> Which is how the pe- book ends too, right? More right. or less. Basically. And so people who did not know that, that the book ends on this unresolved note were like up in arms at my screening. And I think people will be all this weekend as they watch this movie. Um, and so I'm curious, as someone who did not read the book, Dana, what did you think of that ending? Uh, I have to admit, I kind of liked it. I mean, as as cliffhangers, as cheap selling the next movie in the series, cliffhangers go, it was kind of stylish. I liked that it ended on, on a moment of them trying to connect and then being, you know, sort of cut off from each other by the closing door. And I didn't mind that it ended without resolution because, you know, I, I know that this is like a slow courtship story. Right. I yeah, I loved it, but I think I'm someone who thinks that the appropriate pace for watching these movies is like once every two years. So I'm just I'll wait two years or however long it takes for them to make the next movie, and then I'll watch that one, and I'm perfectly satisfied. With the <laughs> it'll take two years for you to cool down from this one, and then oh, you'll be totally. ready for the next yeah, one. Yeah, watch out. Um, it was. I mean, it's funny. My problem with it, I think, is mostly that. So the book is terrible, right? We all agree on this, but. One scene in the book that if you accept the book on its own terms actually works pretty well is that final whipping scene. The scene where she sort of having gone through all this sort of light bondage, but un- being unable to connect to him emotionally demands to know what he, who he really is basically. And in the book, the scene is like legitimately difficult to deal with. Like it, the pain is horrible. It, it, like she it's like screaming as i recall or maybe i was screaming but it's like it's very it's not artfully written but it's very viscerally written in a way that's meant to show you how bad this is and so it makes sense when she then walks out the door like it makes sense that this is a different side of him that she's never seen whereas in the movie like the sound design didn't make it seem like the whipping was very hard. He just looked constipated. Like he didn't look <laughs> like like dominant. You're right. He should have been getting off. Right. That should have been the one moment where you see him really kind of lose control. But he was his same yeah. old stiff faced self. Felt like, right. And so like that scene, it was like a. It was, Yes. Ah, it was such a flop for me, and it was so disappointing, I thought. (laughs) All right. Well, given that Amanda is the ideal audience member (laughs) designed for these movies, will you come back in two years and talk about 49 Shades of Grey or whatever the next one is called? One Shades. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for coming in. Dan, thank you also for bringing your knowledge. Thanks, guys. It was fun. And just one programming note before we wrap up. A lot of you may have noticed, and I know some of you have written in about this, that of late, the spoiler feed has been taken over by various different kinds of spoilers, uh, a podcast spoiler, the serial spoiler special, various TV spoiler podcasts. But we're in the process of reconfiguring Slate podcasts as they grow into a massive empire. And I just wanted to reassure you all that the movie spoiler special is back. So while I'm on hiatus from writing movie reviews, which is February, March, and April, we're going to be doing one spoiler special a month. And after I come back in May, we are going to commit to a twice a month schedule for movie spoilers. So rest assured, fans of this podcast, that although it has been on hiatus and shifting in various ways, it has not died and will be back in force in spring. Our producer is Chris Wade. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. 
Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.